Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Tom Palmer, and it's my pleasure and my honor to welcome you to this Cato University 2018 College of Economics. Now, I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, so Cato University is in my portfolio. And during my day job, I'm executive vice president for international programs at uh, the Atlas Network. And so I work with hundreds of organizations like Cato Institute around the world. I've been involved with Cato since before there was a Cato Institute. So I knew all the founders and spent uh, uh, 1978 working there and helped to set up the first Cato Institute summer seminars in political economy in 1978. So it's really, for me, a, a lifetime commitment and an honor to be involved with this program. Now, I've seen a number of uh, faces in the audience of uh, friends here. I've learned some years ago not to say old friends, but <laughs> longtime uh, friends, uh, but also a lot of new faces and people I hope I'll get to know better by the end of this program. Now, last year, the Cato Institute celebrated our 40th anniversary of promoting liberty. And from my basic math awareness, I think that makes this our 41st year. Didn't get quite as much attention as the 40th, but I hope I'm around to celebrate the 50th. The mission of the Cato Institute, as adopted by the Board of Directors, is to originate, disseminate, and increase understanding of public policies based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Our vision is to create free, open, and civil societies founded on libertarian principles. Now, those libertarian principles used to be called liberal, and indeed, in much of the world, they still are. The economist Joseph Schumpeter noted that the use of the term liberal in the United States, his adopted country after he left Austria, he said, as a supreme, if unintended, compliment, the enemies of private enterprise have thought it wise to appropriate its label. So if I sometimes, in the course of this program, lapse and speak of liberalism or liberal policies, uh, please forgive me. Uh, I'm not referring to Senator Elizabeth Warren <laughs> or Joe Biden or anything like that, uh, but real liberalism, authentic liberalism, classical liberalism. Uh, in the United States, to avoid that confusion, we usually use the word libertarian. Now, the Cato Institute is organized as a public policy research institute under the rules of Section 501C3 of the U.S. Federal Tax Code. What that means, in a nutshell, is if someone invests in our work, that person can deduct the amount of the donation or investment uh, from his or her taxable income. So if you tax at a 30% rate, you donate $100, you take $100 off your taxable income, you save $30, but it still costs you $70. Now, I mention that because I sometimes run into people who seem to think that you can get rich by donating to a think tank. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is not the case. Nonetheless, anyone who would like to try <laughs> is invited to talk to me or to my colleague Sally James afterward. Where is Sally? There she is right here. Uh, <laughs> Sally is from Australia, but unlike so many of the creatures from that vast country, she is not poisonous. 
but I think you'll, you'll enjoy her company. It's good old-fashioned Australian charm wrapped up with a brilliant legal mind. Now, our financial support is 100% voluntary. We don't get any governmental funds, either from the US government nor from any other government. And we're very careful to keep that firewall intact. It's an important principle at the Cato Institute. The great bulk of our support, <clears throat> over 80%, comes from individual donors. That's human beings like you and me who sit down and write checks that draws in their hard-earned money to support our work. Uh, we get a smaller percentage from foundations, about 15%. And then, this is the interesting part, uh, we are frequently referred to in the media as the corporate-backed Cato Institute. Uh, we receive approximately 1% of our revenue from corporations. My colleague David Bowes sent to the New York Times reporter who wrote that a letter. He said, I attach a list of organizations that receive more than 50% of their funding from corporations, and I look forward to seeing articles about the corporate-backed NAACP, ACLU, and so on and about 4% from sale of books, registration fees from conferences, and so on. We have about 15,000 active, loyal sponsors who every year make an annual uh, donation. Uh, vast majority are in the United States, but some are abroad. And all of them do so as an expression of their personal commitment to liberty, limited government, freedom of trade, and peace. Now, most of the work that Cato does, so the vast bulk of the iceberg, uh, is on particular issues of public policy, taxes, spending, regulations, foreign policy, military, criminal po uh, military policy, criminal justice, immigration policy, war on drugs, freedom of speech, property rights protection, health care policy, and so on. But unlike some other think tanks, we do not claim that we don't have an agenda. I gave a talk uh, some years ago to all the Fulbright scholars who were in uh, Washington, D.C., and a vice president of another think tank was there, a panel talking about public policy in Washington. And this other person said, unlike the Cato Institute, we at the, <clears throat> not to mention institute, have no agenda. And the only person who was fooled was the person who said it. Everybody has an agenda. We all have the principles that move us. Just the questions that you ask tells me a lot about your principles, what it is that you hope to achieve. For example, uh, in Washington, we ask a very difficult question. And when you ask this, whether it's in a party or a congressional testimony, it's considered rude. Conversation stops. People <coughs> cough nervously. Uh, and the question is, can you show me where in the United States Constitution the power proposed is authorized? People find that unpleasant and rude. Uh, eyes roll, throats are cleared. Uh, we've asked it for over 40 years, and we will ask it uh, continuously. It tells you about our agenda. We believe in the rule of law. We believe in the principles of constitutional limitations on government. We believe in the presumption of liberty and not the presumption of power. Our mission statement says we advance the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. And our view is, by stating them up front, it helps us to be better at our jobs and more honest. Because we don't deny we have those principles. We don't try to smuggle them in. 
uh, in some form. And indeed, it makes us more attentive to the virtues of intellectual and scholarly excellence, to accuracy, objectivity, and fairness. We don't smuggle our principles in. We acknowledge them up front. And then we make sure that we meet those standards. Have we stated the alternative view in its strongest form rather than its weakest, for example? Have we been fair to others who disagree with us? We do not question the motives of other people, though all the selfish bastards are out there just to get their own way, but we do not mention this. Uh, and indeed, uh, our former president used to give a talk regularly to policy staff. He said, if ever you find yourself questioning the motives of another person, you have lost the argument. You have just lost. You should be able to win on the facts, the logic, the motivation of the other person is irrelevant. We also make sure that all the facts are double, triple, quintuple checked, all the citations are checked and rechecked, that the work is in the public interest and it does not reflect any particular special or partial interest. And again, that the arguments are met in their strongest and not their weakest form. But it's not just about public policy analysis. Everything we do at the Cato Institute derives from our basic principles. In addition to being motivated by them, we defend them. We think that they are worthy. And Cato University is one of the vehicles by which they, we do that. As I mentioned, we started initially in 1978. I attended uh, the first ones and lectured uh, in later years uh, at seminars. And then when I came back to the Institute in 1995 uh, from England, we relaunched them in 1997 under the umbrella of Cato University. For the, this year and the previous year, we've uh, used, instead of week-long programs, we shifted to long weekend programs. We held a College of History and Philosophy and a College of Law and Government, and now you're at the College of Economics. Next year, we're going to go back to the long integrated program, and there are various reasons for this. We want to be able to appeal to as many people as we can, and some people can't go for a week. Uh, some people find it difficult to break up into different groups, so we're alternating this in and out. And the next one will be at the Institute's gleaming, futuristic, fabulous Liberty Headquarters in Washington, D.C., which is a building we're very, very proud of that headquarters. Now, this is the College of Economics. So I want to start with a substantive uh, discussion, uh, specifically a defense of economics. Most people have heard the dismissive quip an economist is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Ha ha, so cue, but um, tsh, uh, and the tittering and so on. That's actually stolen from a comment in a play by Oscar Wilde, in which Lord Darlington, who's also famous for stating, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars, is asked, what is a cynic? And he replies, a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. So the quip has been ripped out of context by literary ignoramuses uh, and then applied to denigrate economics, which does talk about values and prices, as if knowing something about market prices were of no value at all. Economics is not the only thing we need to know to understand the world. There are lots of other disciplines and lots of other arts, but economics 
which is not confined to understanding price, but in which price is an important concept, is, in my opinion, necessary to understand the world. Economists may not always, in fact, normally will not know the prices of everything, but they do have an understanding of the role that prices play. And that's something of great value. Now, the other slight that you will hear uh, is when economics is referred to as the dismal science. I've had this thrown at me by a political theorists and philosophers in my own academic discipline. Oh, yes, another response from the followers of the dismal science was one said to me at a conference. Uh, that insult has a most interesting history, one that is never known by those who repeat it. It was not deployed to suggest that economics is dull or dreary, in contrast to poetry. The originator of the term, the dismal science, Thomas Carlyle, referred to poetry as a, a gay science, gay in the sense of jolly and delightful. Nor was it deployed because of the predictions of a dismal future by Thomas Malthus. That's the other story you usually hear. Oh, it's because Malthus had this dismal future. Uh, Malthus argued that his population would, would grow geometrically and food production would grow arithmetically. Want and misery were the necessary outcomes, the future for humanity. Malthus, Malthus, by the way, was an ardent enemy of free trade, and his views were robustly uh, criticized by the free market economists of his time. In fact, this word, the dismal science, as an attack on economics, is coined by Thomas Carlyle in an exceptionally repulsive essay, The Occasional Discourse on the Negro Question, in which he attacked the classical economists because they supported the elimination of slavery. As he wrote, and referring to Exeter Hall philosophy, Exeter Hall was where the meetings of the anti-slavery society was held. He said, truly my philanthropic friends, Exeter Hall philanthropy is wonderful. And the social science, not a gay science, but a rueful, which finds the secret of this universe in supply and demand, in quotes, and reduces the duty of human governors to that of letting men alone, is also wonderful. Not a gay science, I should say, unlike some we have heard of. No, a dreary, desolate, and indeed quite abject and distressing one. What we might call, by way of eminence, the dismal science. These two, Exeter Hall philanthropy and the dismal science, that is to say, the anti-slavery cause and economics, led by any sacred cause of black emancipation or the like, to fall in love and make a wedding of it will give birth to progenies and prodigies, dark, extensive moon calves, unnameable abortions, wide-coiled monstrosities, such as the world has not seen hitherto. He went on to attack the idea of freely agreed wage labor and insisted on slavery. Quote, the West Indies, it appears, are short of labor, as indeed is very conceivable in these circumstances, where a black man, by working half an hour a day, such is the calculation, can supply himself by aid of sun and toil with as much pumpkin as will suffice, he is likely to be a little stiff to raise into hard work. You can hear the titters from his pro-slavery audience. Supply and demand, which science says should be brought to bear on him, have an uphill task of it with such a man. Strong sun supplies itself gratis. Rich soil in those unpeopled or half-peopled regions, almost gratis. 
these are his supply, and half an hour a day directed upon these will produce pumpkin, which is his demand. The fortunate black man. Very swiftly does his subtleized account with supply and demand. Not so swiftly the less fortunate white man of these tropical localities. He himself cannot work. And his black neighbor, rich in pumpkin, is in no haste to help him. Sunk to the ears and pumpkin, imbibing saccharine juices, and much at his ease in the creation, he can listen to the less fortunate white man's demand and take his own time in supplying it. Higher wages, massa. Higher, for your cane crop cannot wait. Still higher, till no conceivable opulence of cane crop will cover such wages. In Demerara, as I read in the blue book of last year, the cane crop far and wide stands rotting. The fortunate black gentlemen, strong in their pumpkins, having all struck till the demand rise a little. Sweet blighted lilies now getting up their heads again. A more repulsive statement of racism is hard to imagine, and that is the foundation of the attack on economics. So remember that the next time one of your socialist or aristocratic friends denigrates the economic way of thinking as the dismal science. This emerges from a repulsive defense of slavery in an attack on the idea that people should be free to contract for labor. Economics as a term comes to us from Greek, as do so many other interesting words. Its constituents are oikos, which means a household. Not just a house, as we would think today, but a productive unit, a family estate of some sort. And nomos, which refers to the rules or principles uh, that govern or are used to manage an oikos, a, a household. <clears throat> so it refers to the art of household management, uh, something like what used to be called home economics in schools or business management today. What we call economics today used to be called political economy because it was referring to the principles that govern productive activities in a polity, in a much wider uh, uh, order that encompasses many, many households. The term political was dropped uh, toward the end of the 19th century, but it's seen something of a revival in the past few decades as the insights of economics have been applied again to political and legal institutions. Now, economics at heart is not about mastering some set of technical skills or solving a bunch of really hard math problems, as some professors like to suppose. It's about understanding social order. Aristotle, in his metaphysics, stated, it is through wonder that men now begin and originally began to philosophize. That is to say, to think systematically, to ask about causes. You look up at the moon, it looks in some ways like a big rock. Why doesn't it fall on us? That's the beginning of philosophy, when we wonder about things. Economics starts in wondering how things we take for granted happen. When I go to the grocery, I sometimes find myself asking, how did all this stuff get here? How is it possible that there are carambola star fruit? I, don't, I have no idea where they come from. Carambolia or someplace. How did they all come to this place where I wanted to come and shop and I could be exposed to all of these things? Why is this building full of foods from all over the world? What process brought them here? Was it just random? Just randomly 
all this food ended up here, and all the people who wanted to buy food somehow ended up there as well? Or was there some mastermind who coordinated the hundreds and hundreds of millions of people involved in putting all of that stuff there? Did all those people get detailed commands to bring just so many grape tomatoes to this place because I was going to prepare a papaya salad? How did it happen? Well, the great French political economist, one of my heroes, Frederick Bastiat, put it very neatly, how is Paris fed? That's the question. How is Paris fed? So that's the everyday version of wonder that we can see in our daily lives, to marvel at how this stuff happens. I'm always amazed my luggage arrives when I do, <clears throat> when you think of how logistically complex uh, that is. Uh, but a wider version requires multiple experiences that allow us to compare different places, cities, towns, countries, and regions. We notice that some places, people are able to consume a lot more than in others. So I travel a lot around the world. In the next few weeks, I will be in um, Los Angeles, which is weird, and um, uh, Morocco, Egypt, Ethiopia, Namibia, and South Africa. Uh, and when I go there, I often interact with people uh, who live in conditions that would shock most people. Uh, people die because they can't afford just a few cents a day for a saline solution to recover from cholera. Uh, just 25 cents would save someone's life, but they don't have it. I've married into a family uh, such that I have to still argue with my mother-in-law about the 35 cents that is the difference between traveling in a van and traveling in the back of a truck uh, when we arrange for her to go visit her doctor uh, two hours away in the town. And she tells me, she says, Tom, you should save your money for 35 cents. So that's the difference in, in our living standards. And she can kind of understand 35 cents isn't very much money to me, but to her it's a lot of money. That's how uh, she grew up. So the question is, why are those people in those places poor and others are rich? And one person who focused his attention on that question was the Scottish moral philosopher Adam Smith. And a look at his famous book is revealing just the title, which is almost never correctly stated. So you hear, oh, in the wealth of nations. It is an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. And just the title is interesting because he revolutionized our thinking about these questions. Each term is important. Now, most prior writers had started by assuming that what is the nature of the wealth of nations? It's the wealth of the court and the king, the magnificence of their palaces. That is the wealth. Or their armies, the steeds, the flags, the pennants. That's the wealth of the nation. Smith began his work with something much more humble, not the nation's wealth in the sense of the king's gold and silver or his armies, but the annual produce of the combined labor of the nation divided by the number of consumers, a concept that's come down to us as gross domestic product today. As he said, according, therefore, as this produce or what is purchased with it bears a greater or smaller proportion of the number of those who are to consume it, the nation will be better or worse supplied with all the necessaries and inconveniences for which it has occasion. 
So the nation isn't just the ruling elite, it's everybody. Uh, and the wealth of the nation is to be measured by what any person chosen at random is able to consume. That's the wealth of the nation. But what about its causes? Here's the other important point. Wealth has causes. Most people today ask the question, what causes poverty? Uh, I was asked from years ago to contribute a chapter on uh, poverty to a book published by Cambridge University Press. It was an interesting experience because there was a variety of different perspectives. So there was a Christian author who was a socialist, a Jewish author who was a socialist, a Muslim author who was a socialist, a socialist author who was a communist, <laughs> a uh, 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 critical studies author who was a socialist, et cetera, et cetera, and me. And I started out by saying, that's the wrong question. And it, it caused trouble. I got a lot of feedback. What do you mean it's the wrong question? I said, poverty has no cause. Wealth has causes. And I produced a graph, simple one, that's now fairly well known, showing the hockey stick, per capita income, flat, for thousands of years. And then it turns upward. I said, which demands explanation, the flat line or the hockey stick? Which one do we have to explain? <clears throat> the appearance of wealth in the last few centuries or millennia of poverty? Or another way I put it, which caused them to scratch their heads, poverty is what you get when you fail to produce wealth. It is not the case that wealth is what you get when you fail to produce poverty. Imagine someone who says, oh my God, we work so hard, constantly, diligently to produce poverty, we failed, and we are fabulously rich instead. <laughs> That's just not how the world works. <clears throat> so we have to explain what causes wealth. And the primary causes are, or determinants are not gold and silver mines, fabulous armies, the best trained uh, knights, uh, and so on. It's institutions that create incentives for voluntary cooperation to produce wealth. It's a culture that rewards and respects achievement and value creation. So poverty, as measured against that background, is a failure to create or hold on to wealth because of the existence of bad institutions that create disincentives for voluntary cooperation or worse, create incentives for people to engage in predatory behavior and to steal from others. Well, look around the world, and here's something that's quite remarkable. There are poor places, but not poor people. How do we know that? If those people in poor places go to rich places, very soon they aren't poor anymore. What was it? that was keeping them poor? Was it their poor people, or were they people who lived in a poor place? It's the institutions, and not just the people. The same could be said of standards of honesty. I was at a conference some years ago in Pakistan, and talked about the benefits of free markets, uh, and someone noted, he said, Pakistanis cannot live in a market economy because we are all so corrupt. We're corrupt people. We're failed. We cannot live in a market economy. And an imam who was present, who was very friendly to market economy, everyone was sort of nodding, he stepped up and he said, just a minute, 
The same Pakistani who pays bribes to do business in Pakistan flies to London, goes to Heathrow Airport, steps across a line, and will not give any more bribes. He's the same person. His heart did not change. He went from corrupt Pakistan to honest England. His heart was the same. It was the institutions that changed. You can't do business in Pakistan if you don't pay bribes because of the political system there. So what institutions make people, places and thus people honest and prosperous and peaceful and free? Well, they're ones that create incentives to cooperate and create added value rather than to spot, fight over the spoils. Now, that might seem like an indirect answer, but there's a reason for that. And this is something that we need to stress in public policy. It's extremely rare that one can choose outcomes. Prosperity, health, longevity, and so on. If we could choose those directly, we'd all be really healthy and live forever and be rich. But we can't. What we can choose are processes that we hope or expect will lead to the outcomes that we want. If you want to become stronger, eat well and exercise. You can't just say, today I choose to be stronger. It doesn't work. I've tried. Uh, if you want to live longer, go to a good doctor, eat well, don't jump off of cliffs, and so on. You can't just say, I choose to live longer. It doesn't work if you don't follow the right principles or rules. And that's also true in social order. We choose the processes, and in this case, we call them rules, practices, and institutions that we expect will lead to the outcomes we want. Incentives induce people to behave in certain ways rather than others, not because they're all selfish. Incentives aren't just for selfish people. It's for anyone who has purpose in life, anyone who acts to achieve their goals. A philanthropist who wants to help the poor and finds that some kinds of food are more expensive than others, which is equally nutritious, will adjust his or her buying to try to help the greatest number of people. They're reacting to incentives no differently uh, from someone who's not concerned about other people. Now, a lot of political disagreement uh, boils down to this distinction between outcomes and processes. Our interventionist friends think they can directly choose the outcomes they want. They say, well, pass a law. It's the law that will make that stop. This is how we get endless pages in the Federal Register. We identify a problem, say, that's bad. We don't like that. We'll pass a law, and people won't do it anymore. It works. Just think of the drug laws in America. No one smokes marijuana. It's illegal, right? No one does those illegal things because they passed laws. They said those things won't happen anymore. In fact, all they do is create a different set of incentives. In the case of the war on drugs, we've seen some of the consequences. The corruption of the police forces, uh, for example, the uh, drug distributors relying on younger children because they're less likely to be arrested by the police, and on and on, this cascade of consequences. They didn't stop people from taking narcotics. They just changed the incentives. And who benefited from that? The people who are willing to break the laws and to compete on the basis of violence and brutality rather than price and quality and service 
uh, as they do with liquor stores. Liquor stores used to compete on the basis of brutality until liquor was made legal. And now they compete on the basis of the fine wines they have or the good service or location or price or other things. If you want to raise the wages of labor, you can help change rules to encourage people to improve and increase their skill sets or to save and thus increase the ratio of capital to labor or to innovate and come up with uh, a new and better ways to create value. All of those will increase the wages of labor. Or you can pass a minimum wage law. The former will raise the wages of labor and the latter may raise the wages of some and it will kick everyone else out of their jobs. So you will create unemployment. Well, what creates value? Work, that's pretty obvious, or labor can create value. Anyone who's read undergraduate student papers realizes the labor theory of value is wrong <clears throat> because it doesn't matter how long they worked on it if it's not a good paper, as I explain sometimes to students. I said, I want to hear how long you worked on this. It's not a good paper. Um, but labor can create value, but also trade. Trade creates value. Just the act of trading voluntarily makes people better off. Certainly they expect to be when they do it. Voluntary create, creates value. It also requires something, which is security of rights. It matters that our claims will be protected from predators. I'll give you a simple example of that. I used to hear years ago, you go to Arab countries and people would say, usually more touristic types, wow, these Arabs, they're really good at capitalism. There are bazaars everywhere, and they're always bargaining and haggling. I say, that's not capitalism. That's not an advanced market economy. That is evidence of the lack of institutions, because all transactions are spot transactions. Here's the good, here's the money, the trade is made. Long-term transactions require security of property rights, a contract system that's enforceable. And when so much of the economy is in the bazaar, that tells you their legal institutions are underdeveloped. Arabs can haggle. Yes, everybody can do that. That's not what the market economy is about, just haggling. It's about the legal institutions that protect your rights so you can engage in those long-term uh, trades. Adam Smith, again, got that right. In 1750, a quarter century before the publication of his better-known book, he said, little else is requisite to carry a state to the highest degree of opulence from the lowest barbarism, but peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice. I like the modesty and humility there. Not perfect justice, but good enough, tolerable. All the rest being brought about by the natural course of things. All governments which thwart this natural course, which force things into another channel, or which endeavor to arrest the progress of society at a particular point are unnatural and to support themselves are obliged to, be, obliged to be oppressive and tyrannical. So little else is requisite. But what is requisite is where we should put the focus of our attention. Limited government, the rule of law, security of rights, freedom to trade, to create, to travel, to enjoy the fruits of one's labor and peace. In short, liberty. So in much of the world, when I go there, I explain, your government does too much and too little at the same time. Too much managing companies and stealing from people and running people off their land and violating people's rights and too little protection of their rights and too little provision of a reliable legal system that can adjudicate disputes. So on the one hand, it's too much. 
On the other hand, it's too little of what really matters. Now, the Cato Institute is a leading participant in a major annual study of legal and political institutions that are related to economic freedom, the Economic Freedom of the World Report. And you can visit it at the Cato.org. Uh, the results are pretty obvious. Uh, there's a very robust correlation between the degree of economic freedom that people enjoy and their income and all the things that cascade from that. Longevity, <coughs> uh, uh, literacy, health, and so on, as well as all of the other human rights that we consider to be important. Poor countries adopt good policies and become wealthy countries. Poor places go from poor to rich places. At the Atlas Network, we've done additional research on poverty, per se, and its relationship to economic freedom. And the results are very, very robust. If you want people to be able to escape from poverty, make it easier to start a business. Make it easier to hire people, which also includes easier to fire people. There's a principle there. Costly to fire means costly to hire. In many countries with high unemployment rates, it's because they have so much labor legislation. Uh, Cato also publishes a very important human freedom index. So in case anyone thinks all you care about is economics, it's a much wider look at human freedom, including violence, uh, gender violence, equal, equality before the law, uh, and so on. All of those things are actually very strongly related one to another. And the classical liberals of the 18th and 19th centuries understood that, although they didn't have as robust evidence as we have today that all of these freedoms are intimately connected. And most importantly, freedom of trade and peace, which is another important value of the Cato Institute. Now, Karl Marx believed that the capitalist system was characterized by what he called the anarchy of production. No one's in charge. It's just anarchistic. Who knows what's going to happen? But what he didn't see was the order that emerges without conscious direction when you get the basic rules right, it's much more complex order than any human mind could have designed or instituted. Think about the difference between a military drill and a jazz symphony, for example. Socialism is about military drills. We will create the order and impose it on people. And for classical liberals, the order emerges from the interaction of all the members of society. So an order of individual rights that are well-defined, legally secure, makes possible prosperity and more harmony than intentional attempts to impose order on the, world, uh, on the entire society. But classical liberals have understood for a long time that freedom isn't just about increasing our ability to consume stuff. Free societies allow us also to fashion our own identities independently of the coercive power of warlords or rulers who insist on imposing their conception of our identities on us. Liberty allows us to become the people that we want to be, to express the individuality that we want to achieve. James Buchanan, Nobel laureate in economics, very famous for his technical work on the economics of public choice, but he noted that this concern with just more stuff doesn't capture what was really important. It's not just becoming richer, although there's something to be said for that. In fact, a lot to be said for that. Uh, liberty helps us to become the people that we want to become. 
And as he wrote, using at that time very highly gendered language, but I think this is relevant to anybody regardless of gender, uh, man wants liberty to become the man that he wants to become. He does so precisely because he does not know what man he will want to become in time. Let us remove once and for all the instrumental defense of liberty, the only one that can possibly be derived from orthodox economic analysis. Man does not want liberty in order to maximize his utility or that of the society of which he is a part. He wants liberty to become the man he wants to become. And that is what free societies allow us to do, to fashion the identity that we want to have for ourselves.